What's up, Doc? It's episode five of For Our Edification. Thank you for downloading this edition of For Our Edification. I'm Eddie Francis. I'm the host, and uh, Halima's here too. She's the co pilot, Dr. Halima Leek Francis, I presume. And uh, speaking of uh, being Dr. Halima Leek Francis, I'm sorry, Dr. Halima Leek Francis. So just about a year ago, you successfully defended your dissertation for New York University. Uh, the dissertation, Making Bricks Without Straw, the Kresge HBCU Initiative and Fundraising at Historically Black Colleges and Universities. And so um, I definitely want to talk to you about that because the we you and I have had a, a running conversation about the journey and who you are, who you were before, who you've become, what you've learned, all that kind of good stuff. <laughs> the moments, all the moments <laughs> going through it. <laughs> and I think that's a really important conversation. Um, and before we dive in, just as a reminder, um, you can, uh, by all means, uh, go check out the podcast by going to my website, eddiefrancis.com, but then also check out social media. Check me out on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Pinterest, and Facebook, and all those other good places. But in the meantime, the views and opinions expressed on For Our Edification do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of the hosts, guests, or any entities with which we are affiliated. So as you were going on the uh, doctoral journey, you talked about some pretty personal things along the way and obviously i i was <laughs> obviously i heard these personal things because of <laughs> our relationship not so sure you would have just uh talked to this stuff about you know with somebody just sitting in the bar of course if you were still living in new york you might have done that <laughs> um <laughs> but here, here's what i took from it um especially as i'm working on my master's and up for light consideration is my going after a doctorate. <laughs> um, what I took from it is that I took that with this journey, the doctoral journey. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to have some sense of a personal productivity. You, you, you have to have a purpose in this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't have a purpose, it, it can kind of run you instead of your managing the journey. It, it's That's what it seems could happen. So there are three things that I, I really wanted to talk about, especially for someone who is considering a doctorate. Three things that I really think could help anybody else who's listening to this. Um, your why and who you've become. Second thing would be the mental and emotional landmines. The third thing would be the importance of doctorates to society mm-hmm. as a whole because you're part of your background of sociology. Right. Um, so I think those are some pretty important things. So let's start with the basic stuff. Why the doctorate? Uh, and, and why did you do the research <laughs> that you decided to do? Well, at, at different points in the journey, my why shifted. Um, and, you know, it. I started my Ph.D. program in 2006 and um, successfully completed my dissertation or defended my di- my dissertation in November of 2018. 17, um, 2017. Oh, 2017. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ooh, thank you for that. And the why changed. I mean, if you do the math, obviously it took over 10 years. Mm-hmm. So um, my why changed. You know, I, I started out 
um, like a lot of doctoral candidates or people interested in getting their PhDs. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been very passionate about education. I've always loved education on some level personally, and I've always personally placed a high volume value value on that. Um, but as time went on, I had a different relationship with my process. I had a different relationship with my research. Um, it, it's uh, honestly a lot like a long-term relationship, a serious mm-hmm. relationship, a marriage. And you have to keep reminding yourself of why you're here at mm-hmm. certain points because it is it is um, a very intense and rigorous uh, journey and process. And I, I don't care how, where you go to school, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people say, oh, well, if you go to brick and mortar or if you go to an elite institution, if you go to certain types of institutions, there are assumptions about the rigor and how uh, valuable the education is. Regardless mm-hmm. of where you go, um, this is a commitment and it's, it's a process and a journey. And at times my why was um, connected to my desire to learn more about the body of work, you know, the research that I'm, that I'm connected to and immersed in. Um, another point in time my why was tied to my family Mm, Um, mm -hmm. you know because I come from a family that I knew that my parents would be very proud to see me walk across that stage Mm -hmm. and I felt like I owed it to my family you know for everything that they invested in me um, throughout my life and um, my undergraduate journey was not perfect you know (laughs) (laughs) Join the club on that one. <laughs> so at at one point in time, my why became you know I want to I want to make up for that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Another point in time, my why became uh, recognizing that I am one of very few people in the nation, uh, in the world who has this privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Other points in times, one one of my good friends, uh, Leslie Brown, who uh, is also on her doctoral journey mm-hmm. now. Uh, she, we were talking about her research and she said her research was her love letter to her people, you know, Mm, to to black mm -hmm, women, mm -hmm. to black families. And that is what my research became at at a point in time. So my why changed, Mm -hmm. Uh, it changed over time. Um, So, so wait, now before you go on, did, did, mm -hmm. did you, did your doctoral colleagues express similar thoughts that they, that their why's changed over the course of time, over the course of their um, doctoral journeys as well? Um, we, we never really talked a lot about that, but, Mm -hmm. but through experiences. So knowing about the different experiences that they were having and, and understanding what it took to Mm -hmm. manage those experiences and our, uh, requirements or our responsibilities as students in the program, they would say things like, you know, I I have to finish this. I can't quit. I Mm -hmm, can't. mm -hmm. uh, I I have to get through this because I've invested so much. So you hear that echoed through many people's experiences. Mm -hmm. For some people, I, I remember when I got accepted into NYU, a lot of it was I was I was really impressed that it was like I got an NYU stein card, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and and you know NY, NYU isn't just like standing on the corner handing out degrees. Right. So I was very proud of myself um, right, because right. of the status attached to NYU. 
but that wore off pretty quickly when when the rubber you know hit the road and and mm-hmm. I had to do some serious work or I spent some time up until three a.m. in the morning mm-hmm. five days a week like consistently. The the novelty of getting accepted into NYU quickly <laughs> wore mm-hmm. off just out of sheer fatigue. So. It was one of those things that I think everyone who has gone through this process, or many people who have gone through this process, I have not met um, anyone who can who has said it was easy, right. and right. and their motivation was just you know I just need to finish mm-hmm. you know that that I think um, minimizes kind of the depth of the experience and the the depth. Mm-hmm of how this experience transforms you and also transforms the world around you. Mm-hmm. Like you, you, you start to see, um, you start to see the matrix in many ways <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're walking around like, was that intentional? And then you're, uh, you're, you're analyzing everything. So there's a lot that goes on mm-hmm. and to take, to take that on in addition to the cost, the material costs right, right. that, that go along with this, you have to have some pretty strong whys yeah, to finish, yeah. or honestly, the value isn't there for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, my my whys as I went on in the process, as I was getting closer to the end, you know, you you asked me, you challenged me at moments. I, there were several times where I wanted to quit, mm-hmm. and you um, directly pushed me during times that I wanted to quit, and you said, you know, I. I I don't, do you really want to quit? Would you Mm -hmm. be able to live with yourself? Mm -hmm. Would you be able to, would you be able to continue um, in your life knowing that you gave up on this, knowing Mm -hmm. how much it means to you and knowing how much you've already invested in it? But what questions would you ask, be asking yourself for the rest of your Mm -hmm. life? And that's because I saw how much it meant to you. I mean, uh, you know, when you told me, what you were doing when we met and we were getting to know each other and you mm-hmm. told me what you were doing and, and, and you started to tell me why when you started to talk about quitting, mm-hmm. that's what I thought about. I, I thought about immediately what you told me, what motivated you mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, and that's why, that's why I approached it the way I did. Now, if you were somebody who said, well, I'm getting my Ph.D. because... I'm just going to get a better job, and I know I'm going to get a better job after <laughs> I get this PhD, and I need people to call me doctor. <laughs> okay. And if, if, you, if you had been after just a title, yeah. and if you had been just after status, mm-hmm. and if you wanted to go buy your Jaguar after you got the thing, <laughs> then I would have been like, I, honestly, I think I would have, if you had told me you wanted to quit, I would have been like, yeah, maybe you should, because it doesn't sound like you want to do it for any substantive reason other yeah. than to have another title and mm-hmm. a status and mm-hmm. and I think I think that's why your story is is fascinating to me because mm-hmm. your whys your motivations were so strong mm-hmm. which brings me to the dissertation itself hold on let me get this so I can read the title oops <laughs> uh making bricks without straw the Kresge HBCU initiative and fundraising at historically black colleges and universities one day I'm going to commit that to memory baby I'm sorry about that but anyway <laughs> I so well, I'll tell you what, though, you know, so um, so just so the, the listener who has downloaded the podcast, just so you know, I had the, the, the privilege, the honor 
of watching uh, Halima get hooded um, mm. at NYU. And the coolest thing they do is that they put the title of mm-hmm. everybody's dissertation on this big old screen. So you got a couple of oohs and ahs when, <laughs> when, your, when your dissertation... Uh, when your research uh, topic came up, there were people, they were like, oh, ooh, ah, ooh, that's interesting. Oh, you know, uh, so you got that. You, you, oh, thank you. You got that, dog. That was cool. Um, you graduated from Hampton, mm-hmm. which is an HBCU. Mm-hmm. Um, was that the motivation behind the research or what was there more to it? Hampton was a motivator behind the research. Um the there there were again several motivators um that that tied into the research and i'm i'm really glad to know that the title of my dissertation reflected what was going on in my mm. heart and my head when as i was doing my research mm-hmm. um the the making bricks without straw um, ref- it has it's, it's, there are several contexts behind that, and, and you mentioned that you know my my background is in sociology. My master's is in educational sociology, and um, throughout history there have been references, you know, biblical references. There have been educational references. There have been um, race-oriented and, and um, historical references mm-hmm. that talk about the idea of making bricks without straw and um, the process of making bricks. Um, at one point in time involved taking straw, mm-hmm. um, water, all these different things and creating bricks so that you could build something. Well, mm-hmm. if you don't have straw, then that's a critical element. Like mm-hmm. you can't, you can't, um, make bricks or build anything if you don't have your straw. Mm-hmm. So looking at that as it applies to historically black colleges and universities and specifically the space of fundraising and by extension, the space of philanthropy, um, asking HBCUs to be effective at mm-hmm. fundraising without having the institutional, uh, without having, without having had honestly the historical mm-hmm. um, assets and, and resources that their, that peer institutions have had, or that that majority serving institutions have had historically is a very difficult ask to make, honestly. Mm -hmm. And when I was attending Hampton in the time that I, and the time that I graduated from Hampton, I graduated in the 90s, and um, shortly thereafter, a lot of the conversation dealt with HBCUs and fundraising. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And much of the conversation related to HBCUs and fundraising centered around uh, alumni engagement and alumni giving. And the very quick and easy answer was alumni don't give. <laughs> and see your see, see your local Instagram uh, account for that one, you know? right? HBCUs HBCUs ain't got no money because alumni don't give, right? And, and y'all buy all them clothes at homecoming and you ain't giving them to the university, which is which is a legitimate argument. It's a legitimate still. argument, but it's not the complete argument. Yeah. And so often when we are dealing with issues within the black community, um, within communities of color in particular, we are dealing with arguments that we are not seeing holistically. Right. So you, it, it's the same thing applies when you look at health in certain mm-hmm. communities. Um, when you talk to, to people of color about health, uh, many times the argument is, well, so-and-so just doesn't eat well. <laughs> well, 
that doesn't acknowledge the fact that so-and-so mm -hmm. doesn't have a grocery store anywhere close to their home. Right. Right. It doesn't acknowledge the fact that so-and-so has to work four jobs to keep the lights on. Mm -hmm. And by the time they get home, you know, they're, they're dead tired and they don't have the energy, the physical energy and wherewithal to be able to cook and prepare a meal for mm -hmm. themselves. So, so being so quick and, and overly simplistic in our analyses of what our issues are as a community uh, was something that, that drove my research. You know, mm -hmm. I, 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 you cannot ignore that um, HBCUs, uh, as a part of their history, while while being extremely and amazingly resourceful, I mean, we, if you want to... And resilient. And resilient, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. if you want to talk about black folk magic, there, <laughs> <laughs> there it is. You know, we, we built schools, universities that mm -hmm. have been able in many cases to exist for over a hundred years with, 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 with a one room building that's very drafty and people could barely read mm -hmm. it in, in the early origins of these institutions. So comparing their histories to the histories of, you know, a, a Dartmouth or mm -hmm. of, of a Barnard. And, and I, I had also had the privilege of working at a few majority serving institutions in the space of alumni relations and fundraising. So I looked at Hampton and then I, and I looked at, for instance, the work I did at Barnard, which mm -hmm. is a women's, um, women's college that's based in New York. It's, it's affiliated with, with Columbia University. Um, I worked at one time at, at NYU mm -hmm. for the law school and the university. They had an army of fundraisers. Mm -hmm. Like if, if you wanted, <laughs> if, if the, the, there's no, question in my mind looking at their capacity to raise billions of dollars um, and to have endowments in the billions mm -hmm. that staffing with expertise the, that that plays a key role in it and, and to give credence to what you're saying i mean uh, once upon a time and i've told you this story mm -hmm. before i worked at southern university of new orleans at mm -hmm. suno and I was uh, under the development director as the director of PR. And she came to me one day because she saw that I had kind of an eye for it and an ear for it. Mm -hmm. and, and now I know this, knowing you. Um, mm -hmm. And she asked me if I wanted to start doing alumni relations or if I wanted to get more, in, if, I, if I would be interested in learning more about fundraising. And I was like, no, hell no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I, I, was, I was like, I'm not going. Because to me at the time, it was... I'm not going out there and ask a bunch of people for money, but now that I'm listening to you and, and, and having known you and knowing how important his research mm -hmm. was to you, I, I see where she was coming from. Mm -hmm. she, she was like, here's somebody with the talent. Mm -hmm. He has the language. Mm -hmm. He knows how to write. Mm -hmm. He knows how to talk to people. Also to your point of having an army. I also would have had to do this making the same amount of money that right. I was making already to be the PR director, the marketing director, the publications director, the right. sports information yeah. director, and some other director that I was that had to do uh, the, the campus communications director, which is different than being a PR director. Right. I already wore these five hats, mm -hmm. basically, making one paycheck. Mm -hmm. And the fundraising, I think, would have just been, and, and, you know, no shade at you, former boss. But <laughs> but fundraising would have been one more thing added under the same paycheck yeah. where at an NYU, 
that's your job. That, that's it. Yeah, you have the one job. <laughs> you, yeah. you have one job, and you know, and and it's seen that way, mm-hmm. and it's it's treated that way, and you know, there we have kind of the intersection of of theory and practice. So, when you have a practice that is informed by theory, um, and and modified to your environment then you're set up to to do some things, to achieve mm-hmm. some things. You know, also uh, having a development staff or a fundraising staff that understands um, the finances of higher education. Oh, you know, yeah, when you look at yeah. any institution, look at the percentage of their endowment or look at the percentage of their income that is actually driven. And this also applies to nonprofits, general nonprofits as well. Look at the amount or the percentage that comes from individuals. Mm -hmm. And two things will, will likely stand out to you is that generally as a rule of thumb, 80% of the money comes from 20, 20% of the population. Mm. That's one thing. So it, it is important to have like 100% participation mm-hmm. from alumni. But when an institution has 50% partic- participation, having the expectation that 50% participation is going to heal all of the financial issues <laughs> of the institution there 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 are um very few cases where where that's where that's the situation and then also uh institutions they they generate income from a variety of sources you know mm-hmm. some are are tuition driven which again um knowing the cost of education versus how much tuition pays for that is another critical thing you know mm-hmm. one of the campaigns that i've seen a lot of institutions do is um, at a certain point in the year, they will have a specific fundraising campaign and say, this is the point in the year where the student's tuition runs out. So mm-hmm. they do kind of a cost of education campaign. Mm-hmm. So if the if, if tuition is $20,000 a year, the actual cost of that education could be about seventy five to close to $100,000. Mm-hmm. So... You know, keeping those things in mind, um, the investment portfolios of the institutions, um, how, what other uh, avenues of, of engagement are they involved in in, in generating funds? So some mm-hmm. schools, um, and this is where one of the reasons why I, I push uh, institutions engaging in research, well, research is, is oftentimes funded. Mm-hmm. So there, there are some colleges and universities that have some very strong grant portfolios. Mm-hmm. And uh, ironically, there are a lot of majority-serving institutions that do very well doing a lot of research on minority-serving institutions. So, you know, or they're funded in those ways. And those are opportunities. And, and no shade to those institutions that are that are um, engaged in that research. It's important for them to be engaged. But uh, I also think it's important for HBCUs, for Hispanic-serving institutions, mm-hmm. for um, Native American-serving institutions to get funding to do this type of research because mm-hmm. that's a, that's an income generator. And when when my voice or my experience is being re- researched, I want my voice represented. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I, yeah. I believe that it's only right that HBCUs and that you know all the all the minority-serving institutions are um have the opportunity to sit at the table Mm -hmm. and in doing my research 
some of the things that were looked at, and specifically with the Kresge HBCU initiative, my, my research centered around uh, the process of change and the culture of change. And process dealt with infrastructure, you know, do we have technology, do we have staff? You know, there were so many institutions that had one person wearing 30 hats. Mm -hmm. Um, There were so many institutions that would hire a development person um, either because they were very well liked in the community Mm -hmm. or because they were looking for somewhere to put them. Mm -hmm. Um, That was like the job that nobody wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, There were institutions that um, had been heavily uh, grant dependent. Mm -hmm. You know, they had a very strong um, capacity and capability in grant writing, but not so much in individual giving. So there wasn't, again, this, this kind of holistic viewpoint. Um, research, you know, there, there is a science to fundraising. It's not magic. You don't, you And know. that's what people don't know. Yeah. Pe- people yeah. don't understand. I mean, they, people see fundraising as sales by another name. No. Well, <laughs> and, and, and it's, it's similar, um, in the act that you are, um, you are, you are selling, selling in a way. However, the practice of sales in and of itself as well, it's not magic as well. You right, know, you, you right. have to, you have to know your prospect base. You have mm-hmm. to do research. You have to know your product. You have to, um, be very methodical in, uh, setting appointments and meetings and, and how you manage that process. So it's, it's very similar to sales, but it's, it's a, you know, there, there are different motivators that are mm-hmm. tied to it. And the, the industry is structured in a, in a very different way. And it's a specialized skill set. Hmm. Um, when I think mm-hmm. about the, the, the job interviews I went on, um, for different fundraising positions, um, a lot of the conversation what was about communication. A lot of it was about uh, being able to write well. Uh, those are core basic skill sets. But when you look at uh, highly developed, highly sophisticated fundraising operations, many times they ask you about uh, how do you manage the relationship? So it's relationship mm-hmm. management. Uh, and, and there are very technical skills that go along with that. And being able to translate those skills to the context that is that is culturally aligned with what we see at HBCUs is another skill. Mm-hmm. And and I, I would argue and I do I do believe and a lot of this came forward from the research and, and other research that, that is related to what I've done, uh, that we can't just take a majority serving institution model and drop it in an HBCU and expect that to be it. So we mm-hmm. can't just take um, a, a donor database and, and drop it in an HBCU and say, okay, guys, fly, go ahead and mm-hmm. use it, make mm-hmm. it work, raise, you know, $80 mm-hmm. million dollars more than you did last year <laughs> when you haven't fully addressed the issue, you know, when mm-hmm. you haven't addressed um, some, some other elements that are there. So, you know, though I, my research uh, was very personal for me. It was, it was personally driven, um, it was something where I had a lot of questions mm-hmm. and a lot of things that uh, intuitively just did not make sense mm-hmm. <laughs> that I wanted that I wanted answers to because you know the 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 answer that um, that H that HBCU alumni just don't give or we don't have access to Oprah. <laughs> 
that doesn't that does not explain for me. <laughs> you're the whole so you're listening to uh, for our edification of the podcast. Okay, the Oprah comment. She, you know, Sorry, Halim and I have had a laugh about that comment, and and let me tell you where it comes from. It, and this is no shade. This is no shade at anybody, but it, it's kind of so. One of the things that happens in HBCU land, and we're going to get back to talking about you and your doctoral journey. <laughs> Um, but one thing that happens in HBCU land is that you often hear people say, well, why don't they call Oprah? She graduated from an HBCU and she, she graduated from Tennessee State. Yeah. Um, go Tigers. Um, <laughs> and so she, she and so you hear people say stuff like that. And, and I'm sure the new name of the day is probably Michael Strahan yeah, since he's yeah. a Texas Southern alum. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where that came from. So let me tell you, one of the things I found, and I've I've really gotten a chance to let this marinate over the past mm-hmm. few years, I really do believe because I I've looked more because of because of what I do as a recruiter, um, and you know because it's become such an important component of human resources. Um, I have done you know brief and emotional intelligence courses. Mm-hmm. Emotional intelligence is something that I'm studying as part of my master's program right now. I really do believe that who I am changed as a result of my working at HBCUs because I became more emotionally intelligent Mm -hmm. after those experiences. Mm -hmm. So talking about you and your doctoral journey, if you had to talk about who you were before you started your doctoral journey and who you are now, where would you see a difference? <laughs> uh oh. Oh, I was full of hope and wonder. Now. <laughs> and now. <laughs> and now I'm just mad. No. <laughs> the world is hopeless. <laughs> Academic cynicism. <laughs> People don't know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, it it has changed me. Um, in so many ways. And I have to say that I'm grateful for every bump in the road because those were the, those were the defining moments for me. Um, I, I, I'm also thankful for, for the, the positive experiences mm-hmm. because, you know, those, those kind of um, reaffirm some things or they affirm some things um, that, that needed, that, that needed a, affirmation for me or that mm-hmm. I, that I needed affirmation for and um areas where I changed um and I'm still growing in this area is is owning what I know you know mm. being comfortable with what I know and being comfortable with what I don't know mm-hmm. you know I don't know everything I'm not mm. um and I I still struggle um to to call myself an expert um, thank you, friends at the Op-Ed Project. They have an exercise <laughs> in naming yourself as an expert. Um, I still struggle to to call myself or to name myself as an expert in um, my space and in my work because the more you know, the more you realize what you don't know. That is the irony of it. And that really is the irony of it. I mean, that's that's been happening with with me with my yeah, masters because. Yeah. I'm sitting there reading stuff and I'm going, I don't know a damn thing. I don't know what's happening in yeah. this world. 
But at the same time, I'm learning about what's happening in this world. Exactly, and and, and I think that's, that's one crazy. of the crazy. It's 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 like a crazy. It's 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 a beautiful struggle. Like it's it's a crazy mm. beauty <laughs> to it, because in acknowledging honestly, and and freeing yourself from knowing everything. You know, mm-hmm. we sometimes um, some of us carry with us this um, just this this thing, this baggage of having to know everything. Mm-hmm. Like, I got to know everything. And, and and if we don't know, sometimes we'll we'll make up an answer, we'll react in a certain mm-hmm. kind of way, you know. But, but realizing that there's a whole body of research, there's a whole body of work and information that I have a good grasp on, but there's equally, if not larger, body of research and work mm-hmm. that I have yet to learn. Well, that's the, but okay, so for me, before I met you, and I mm-hmm. and I told you this when I met you, <laughs> I, I I was very jaded towards PhDs mm-hmm. because I had worked around some who honestly, in my opinion, they had the opinion that they not the opinion, but they came across as knowing everything. Mm-hmm. And they they came across as having arrived. Mm-hmm. And that really bothered me mm-hmm. because I had people at the time I did work in higher ed. Um, I, I hadn't even begun to consider a master's degree. So, I, honestly, I know now that I was really lucky to be in the mix at the level I was because I had a bachelor's. Mm-hmm. But still, I felt slighted so many times mm. when I would tell people, well, I, ha- I don't have my master's, I don't have a PhD, obviously, but I don't have my master's. And, and people would kind of look down their noses, and it really rubbed me the wrong way. Mm. And so, and I realized that at times I perceived people as looking mm-hmm. at me that way. But then other times, they definitely did. <laughs> and, and some people didn't mind telling me. Yeah. And I remember I had to tell one, I remember I had to tell one doctor, I said, you know, I have about 20 years of experience mm-hmm. in my field. That trumps your theory. Mm-hmm. And he didn't like it. But he mm-hmm. was trying to tell me my job. and. Mm-hmm. And he didn't have a PhD in my field. Mm-hmm. And so I really, really had a problem with that. Mm-hmm. So with you, you're somebody who it sounds like the you, who, the Halima who started the process probably didn't know what she was getting into. Mm-hmm. Maybe thought she knew what she was getting into. Yeah. But then later on, the Halima who had, who had gone through the process <laughs> and finished realized that she had a lot more to learn yeah. and, and is happy to learn more. Mm-hmm. And really welcomes this world of learning. Mm-hmm. But did you see people who, as they were going along, they really didn't seem to get the point. They really seemed to believe that they were learning everything. Um, there, I've seen people who have had the expectation mm-hmm. that they will learn and know everything. So And it, start to solve all the and problems. And start to solve all the problems. <laughs> and... You know, and and eventually, at some point, um, and and for some, the timing is different. For some, there's like a life circumstance or something that happens, and mm. um, their relationship with their discipline, with their body of knowledge, changes, or it, it kind of matures. You know, mm-hmm. when, you, when you look at human development, when you look at people, um, there's there's an age in life where 
in 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 my family and a lot of families, people are like, "Oh, you're starting to smell yourself." So you, know, you, kinda, <laughs> <laughs> you get to that adolescence, usually adolescence, yeah, and you you're starting to feel like you're you're growing into your own. Mm-hmm. You're you're learning more about yourself. You're gaining a level of confidence that you didn't have and independence that you didn't have. But, you know, you get kind of cocky. I mean, it's cliche, but knowledge really is power. Right, exactly. So as you age, as you mature in your research and your discipline and in the space of academia as well or or in whatever space that academia puts you in, um, your relationship with that space and your identity shifts and it changes. And And a lot of times that change is dependent on what happens to you in that space and how you deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very fortunate to, um, to at a point, um, engage in, in mental health. I saw the help of a therapist because I was like, listen, I can't get mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. And a lot of things came out that I wasn't aware were there. Mm-hmm. And that gave me a level of, of com- compassion towards people who, and, and patience towards people mm-hmm. who don't do my work and who don't read the books that I read and who don't engage in the research that I engage in. Because a lot of times when we, when we run into people who are, um, who've reached a certain level, and it's the same thing with money, you know, you see someone who has reached professional success, sometimes they don't, rest, they don't necessarily have time to, like, reach back and, and help others who are coming behind them. Same thing with, with academia. When you, when you achieve a degree, um, some folk, it's, it's like, you know what, I have arrived. I am. Mm-hmm. I have completed my evolution and the evolution of the black race. And, <laughs> you know, but, but it takes time for us to um, have the balance of, mm-hmm. of humility um, and presence of, of mind to understand that, you know, we're, we're part of a continuum. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that, and that was another thing. My, my research in and of itself connected me to history. It connected me to human behavior. It connected me to, to education. Mm-hmm. So that played a role in changing my worldview on some levels. So I became acutely aware of um, people who sacrificed a lot for me to be able to have the opportunities mm-hmm. that I have, so that humbled me. You know mm-hmm. that that kept it in per- that kept it in perspective for me. Um, so, you know, the changes that that I experienced, I, I honestly began to love to encourage others on their their educational mm-hmm. journey, and that's that's always something I've I've enjoyed and I've done, but really saying to people, listen, you're needed, mm-hmm. you're needed, you know, also uh, recognizing that within our community, at some point in time, there was a shift, there's been a shift in our community, and, and I, I would say not just our community, but society as a whole, where intellectualism, where education, where thought, um, where Anything connected, a theory, you mm-hmm. know, those things have been demonized in a way mm-hmm. um, within our society. So mm-hmm. when you look at scholars, they're they're painted as these unapproachable, inaccessible individuals. And sometimes we take on that that mm-hmm. that role. You know, we, yeah. we put that on ourselves because we've been hurt by people in our community, in our own community, people closest to us. You know, in, in my own journey, people who have been closest to me. They said things like, well, you know, you're never going to get married because 
you're putting so much time into mm-hmm. getting this PhD rather or getting an education or getting your master's um, rather than focusing on getting married mm-hmm. and having a family. Um, I've I've lost relationships. You know, people have. Um, do do you me, think now? Do you think mm-hmm. that's particularly uh, you know? And by the way, listening to the uh, for our edification podcast, I'm Eddie and Halima, and um, well, I'm not Eddie and Halima, but I'm, <laughs> I'm Eddie. Halima. Yeah, Halima is the is the other person talking, um, <laughs> the co-pilot, talking about her PhD journey and mm-hmm. what it has done for her as far as her identity and values. So you made a really interesting point about being told that you wouldn't get married. Do you feel that? I mean, that that feels like something that's particularly rough for black women Mm. who pursue PhDs, that they're told that they're not going to fulfill their destinies, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you Mm. know, as as would-be wives and Mm -hmm. homemakers, especially ones who have never been married, who have never had kids, Mm -hmm. and they're told, oh, there's there's no hope for you. Family is never going to happen for you. Yeah. And that, that, that... it's got to be rough, though, to hear that. It, it is, and and it's oftentimes supported by research. So there's 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 a very um, well, that's an inconvenient truth, okay. right? <laughs> so there's a growing body of research mm-hmm. that, that talks about the experience. But but I, but mm-hmm. I feel like the commentary itself, regardless of the research, mm-hmm. I feel like the commentary itself almost encourages a black woman in particular to be. In a, unapproachable in a way mm-hmm. e- even if she is the nicest person mm-hmm. someone someone approaches her with the perception well she's not going to be she's not going to want to deal with any kind of relationship because right now she's chasing her knowledge and she's going to be later chasing her coins mm-hmm. and there might not be any room for me in right. the equation so mm-hmm. I, it, 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 it feels me as if it's almost imposed yeah. you know I, I do think it's imposed. I think that it's not, I don't think it reflects reality um, mm-hmm. or, again, as in a balanced way mm-hmm. um, or in an equitable way. Or is that the reality of some women? Yes. And it's not only relegated to black women, you know. Right, and, right. And it's, it's not only relegated to women. So mm-hmm. just like pursuing um, a certain career path, you know, if someone is interested in being a doctor, a, a lawyer, um, any field that, I mean, if, if someone works on in the military, mm-hmm. any field that requires a high degree of personal engagement mm-hmm. is going to require a high degree of personal sacrifice as well. Okay, so we can we can take gender out and we can take... Race out. We can take a, a race out. Mm-hmm. And so now, well, yeah, because now I'm thinking about a frat brother who I've become very close to, who mm-hmm. is, who he, he has a PhD and a JD. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's kind of like, I don't know how this relationship thing is going to work for me. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, yeah. And, and those things are reality. Now, are there are there ba- barriers that are um, more pronounced because of race and because of gender? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, we will, you you will experience challenges mm-hmm. going through this journey that directly affect your personal relationships. And, and, and taking academia and taking the type of mm-hmm. discipline out. This is the, this is the tale of artists and entertainers. Yeah. The, the more immersed they get into their crafts right. and the, and the mm-hmm. more they sink into it and the more they sacrifice. As a matter of fact, I remember my dad telling right. me, uh, my dad, who was an opera singer, mm-hmm. And I remember I told him I was doing comedy at the time. I was doing stand-up. 
And I told him that I was considering going on the road. And mm-hmm. the first question he asked me was, do you want a family? Mm-hmm. And I said, yes. He said, well, you might want to. He said, don't do it. Right. Uh, yeah. and, and his story is, um, you know, that he had a contract uh, from the Metropolitan Opera back in the day. Mm-hmm. And he didn't sign it because he wanted a family. Right. Um, you know, in which case I'm like, dang, dude, I, <laughs> maybe I could have been born in New York or I don't know, Europe or someplace. I, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. not that New Orleans. I love New Orleans, but yes. yeah. dang. But, and, and those are things we wrestle with, you know, the, mm-hmm. the nature of um, higher ed jobs in, in, in academia, particularly um, jobs in the professorate. You kind of have to go, depending on your field, depending on your discipline, you have to go where the opportunity is. Yeah. So um, for people who are, you know, in in the social sciences, the people who who are in the humanities, um, those positions, and and this is not just those those areas, but those positions... um, Professors many times they die in their positions. <laughs> so, yeah, you know they yeah. they they are they are faculty somewhere, tenured fac- faculty somewhere, for forty years or so. Mm-hmm. And so the the turn the market the way that the market looks is there not a whole lot of windows. So the throughout the country there may be two hundred graduates a year mm-hmm. from from a doctoral program, um, and there may be five positions mm-hmm. for honestly that pool of graduates. So you got you have two hundred graduates and five positions. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> right, right. And, you you kind of have to go where the job is, and that may take yeah. you to Alaska. Like, and your yeah. family may be in New Orleans, and, mm-hmm. and you have to figure that out. Like, mm-hmm. and, and you have to decide what what path, what journey you want to take, and and. There are a lot of things that play into that. So um, the the narrative that uh, black women are um, unapproachable, that black women um, suffer at the cost of of, of a career choice, a career choice, yeah. a, a, an academic, a scholarly choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot to that story. There's mm-hmm. a lot to that narrative, and and but it's not limited to black women. It's not limited to black right. women. Right. Um, and I know there are sisters out there that will argue me down that I'm dead wrong. But oh, of course, that, yeah. but <laughs> that's for that's for another podcast yeah, discussion. And, uh, you know, and and yeah. I, I do acknowledge um, and appreciate, and I've lived myself that. Um, there are things about gender and race that that exacerbate the situation or make mm-hmm, it you know, mm-hmm. a lot more yeah. intense. But um, it's not just us, and and I think we can take comfort in that. You know, we're we're not alone in this struggle mm-hmm. um, because many times we kind of take on um, being alone in a certain type of struggle. And and I do know women who have avoided telling partners mm-hmm. or telling their mates that this is an aspiration of theirs mm-hmm. and um there there ha- i can speak from pers- personal experiences there have been cases where relationships ended for me because mm-hmm. i you know I, I said listen this is a priority for me and mm-hmm. if you care about me you care about my priorities and in the case of you you know th- th- i've been pleasantly pleasantly blessed where i've had a, a partner i've had someone who um, carries me through my research or has carried me through my research when I couldn't carry myself. So mm-hmm. 
you know. I didn't have anything better to do. (laughs) I I had nothing going on. Yeah, and I get weepy every time I think about it. If you ever, okay, so the best part of my dissertation, I'm not encouraging anybody to read the whole thing. Oh, Lord. No, read the whole thing. As a matter of fact, there's a link to it. You can you can go ahead and get the download. Well, you have to buy it. But anyway, anyway, go ahead. I took a lot of um, <laughs> I took liberties with with my acknowledgement. Oh yeah. In my dissertation, I said everything that I wanted to say on my heart, and there there are a few times that I will take that liberty, but I felt it important to acknowledge um, all those individuals and places and experiences that inspired me. And motivated me to keep going. So um, when you're reading anybody's dissertation or anybody's work, read the acknowledgments. You'll learn a lot mm-hmm. about what they experience. And it might be something to inspire you on your journey. Great stuff right there. Very nice start to this two-part interview. Halima's doctoral journey and how it affected her identity and value. If you know anyone who is thinking about getting a doctorate, anyone who is in the process of doing it, please share this episode with them. Uh, Part two is coming and all you have to do is go to eddiefrancis.com. You can click uh, podcaster and you can see where you can download uh, part two of this great, great interview. Now, you can also rate the episodes and take the opportunity to do that give us some feedback we would love to get your feedback and subscribe to the four hour edification podcast by all means by the way uh like the sounds here check it out yeah this is my man steven swag weber he calls these swag beats so i'm gonna go ahead and uh let the beat ride in the meantime thank you very much for downloading part two